This episode is brought to you by the Biblical Recorder. Southern Baptists work together because we believe in the Great Commission and we believe in one another. But what happens if that trust fades? What happens to our global vision to make Christ known? The Biblical Recorder is committed to Southern Baptist partnership. Their news reporters provide reliable information and inspiring stories, stories that build trust. Connect with them today on social media or check out the latest news at brnow.org. Want to learn how to interpret and teach the entire Bible in a way that is Christ-centered and clear? Learn with us here on the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Nate and John Aiken here with the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcast. In the last episode, we we talked about the objection, uh, shouldn't we let the Old Testament stand on its own terms? Or you might say it even like this, shouldn't we just read the Bible forwards? We can't read the Bible uh, backwards as well. And so we answered that objection. In this one, we're going to look at uh, what John and I would call the don't try this at home objection. And, and that really, what that is, is... Yeah, the apostles do show us many, many times, and we've talked about that already, where uh, the Old Testament is being fulfilled in Christ, but they, they're Spirit-inspired apostles. We we can't certainly do what the apostles—so that hermeneutic and that way of reading the Bible is good for the apostles, but that certainly can't be good for us because we don't have the same kind of inspiration that the apostles did. So, John, what would you say to, to that objection? Yeah, so the way that you stated it and the way that other people state it is— you know, outside of those, the, those, the apostles are writing the New Testament, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so this is the Holy Spirit uh, interpreting the Old Testament and showing how these, the rock in the wilderness points to Christ, the serpent in the wilderness points to Jesus, and so they're, they're showing how the, the Spirit is inspiring the apostles, or Jesus himself is talking about how these texts, these passages, these stories point to him, and so it's fine when you're dealing with those stories, but outside of those clear examples... Uh, that the New Testament gives us, we can't do this on our own. We can't look at patterns in the Old Testament that aren't specifically mentioned in the New Testament and point them to Christ. And so outside of clear examples that are indicated by the New Testament, we can't do Christ-centered reading of the Bible. And so the first way that I would, I, you know, I guess trying to be like Jesus right. is, yeah. let me answer that question by asking a, a follow-up question, is what constitutes a clear example? Because oftentimes, I think it's up to personality. I mean, mm. you you've said before that you think every yeah, Old I mean, Testament I, scholar believes in typology. They do, that, but too often they only believe in the typology that they recognize, and so they they may say what I do is legitimate. But then when you try to do something and show, hey, no, it seems to be a clear theme, clear type that we're now seeing. You know, we we actually jokingly say all the time, doesn't that sound familiar? And they'll just say, no, that's not legitimate. And it doesn't seem like there's even clear scorecards on how we we hold each other accountable to to this kind of thing. Right. So typolo- by typology, we mean that there's a pattern in the Old Testament that then finds its climax, its fulfillment in Jesus in the New Testament. So one example would be the pattern of sacrifice, where there's these sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs that are making atonement for the people, and then the final sacrifice is Jesus himself paying for the sins of the world, right? So that's a type that climaxes in Jesus, and that's why the author of Hebrews says we don't need to offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus, one sacrifice, dealt with all sins. So that would be an example of a, of a type. Um, 
but that's an example of a type that the New Testament maybe explicitly mentions. And so these scholars would say, no, only clear examples. But again, the question is, what's the scorecard? What's the criteria for what constitutes a clear example? example? Because oftentimes it does feel like it's up to personality and it's up to, yeah, the ones they recognize are the ones that are legit and the ones they don't recognize are the ones that are not legit. I remember... I mean, you've told me a story about when this really landed home for you uh, as far as, you know, some they'll say, no, that seems clear. But no, the the apostles didn't mention this in the New Testament, so you can't do that. So when did it kind of land for you? So I was in a... uh, a class, an Old Testament uh, prophetic literature class, we were dealing with the book of Amos, and each student in the class was a- assigned a passage of Scripture that we were to to explain what that passage, write a paper, explain what that meant. We would present that paper to the class, and then they would rip us and critique us and, and give us feedback. And so in my paper in Amos, <clears throat> I showed how my passage I thought was fulfilled in Jesus and how it was centered on Jesus. And the professor and all the other students just ripped me apart. No, you can't do that. That's illegitimate. New Testament doesn't say that. That um, you can't do that in a in a classroom paper. Maybe you could show that kind of thing in a sermon, but you can't do that in a in an interpretation. Which paper. has its own problem to say. Yeah, that. we want interpretation to drive right. preaching, yeah. not the other way around. Um, and then later in the class, another um, student named Samuel. Samuel had a passage in Amos 8, 9, and 10 that talks about the sun going down at midday, the festivals being turned into mourning in terms of like like lamentation, weeping at like a funeral, and, and weeping for like an only son. Um, and so he, he presents his paper and doesn't say anything about when that prophecy was fulfilled. And the professor who had ripped me right. a couple, you know, a couple yeah. weeks before said to Samuel, well, when is this fulfilled? And he said, we don't know. And the professor's like, uh, yeah, we kind of do. Isn't this fulfilled in the cross? And Samuel said, well, the New Testament doesn't say that. Right. Matthew doesn't say that. Matthew doesn't say, you know, as it is written in right. Amos the prophet, the sun goes down at midday. And the professor's like, but come on. I mean, we obviously know that that's talking about the cross. And so, again, the skeptical professor who had ripped me thinks that this story in Amos, this prophecy in Amos is a clear example, but... But yours and wasn't. Yet mine yeah, wasn't. Right. Well, why is that? Well, it's just because what he felt comfortable with. Right. Okay. So, so again, what's the criteria? What constitutes a clear example? Um, another, uh, you know, what about Genesis twenty-two? There's no necessary passage in the New Testament that clearly connects Jesus, uh, the, Genesis twenty-two, and the sacrifice of the only son Isaac with uh, Jesus the only begotten, as the only begotten yeah, son, right. uh, and yet pa- preachers who don't think Christ-centered preaching is legitimate. When they preach Genesis 22, they'll talk about the cross, right. and they'll talk about the sacrifice of the only begotten Son. Why? Because they're Christians, and because they know the cross, and they see the parallels clearly. Um, but that again, that's there's no place in the New Testament that says, as Moses wrote in Genesis, right. th- this is the only begotten Son being sacrificed here in the New Testament. So why is that a clear example? Well, it's a clear example because it feels right. clear to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one that we'll, we've talked about before is Joseph. Whereas people say, was Joseph a type? Well, I mean, he was betrayed by those closest to him for silver, falsely accused of something he didn't do, uh, taken into captivity, and then the evil that was meant for him, God used for good to save many lives, to save Jews and Gentiles right. alike. I mean, that sure seems like a clear example of something right. that happens yeah. to Jesus. They'll say, well, but the New Testament doesn't say that. Well, and it kind of does in Stephen. Um, but so what cl- constitutes a clear example? It can't be so subjective of... 
that you're the arbiter. I know we all want to think that. Like I, I think when my youth pastor growing up told us, you know, we, we all think we're the ones who've achieved perfect balance, right? right. Yeah. Everybody to the right of me is a fundamentalist. Everybody to the left of me is a liberal. I've achieved perfect balance. Uh, but we, our own subjective feelings cannot be the arbiter of what is legitimate in right. terms of Christ-centered reading of the Old Testament. What's another, you know, you, you, so you have two questions that you kind of ask when somebody comes at you with this, hey, you can't do this at home, you know, you have have the question we've just hit. What's the second question that you that you ask? Yeah, so outside of what constitutes a clear example, when I'm thinking about the way the New Testament is interpreting the Old Testament, here, here's a question I want to ask. Um, what part of the Old Testament does the New Testament not clearly indicate is fulfilled in Jesus? So this is even, so you're coming back in and saying, okay, look, let me even grant to you if it's not a clear example. The problem is in all of these types and patterns, there are, it is clearly shown in the New Testament to be, right. yeah, right. Yeah. So what part of the Old Testament does the New Testament not clearly indicate is fulfilled in Jesus? And so I just, and so I'll just walk through this. The New Testament clearly presents Jesus as uh, the new Adam the the one who his death and resurrection corresponds to Noah and the flood. He's the the reversal of Babel. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's the new Moses. He's the new Aaron. He's the final exodus. He's the Passover lamb. He's the inaugurator of the new covenant. He's the true Israel. He's the stone in the wilderness that, that gives you water. People say, don't find Christ under every rock. And yet Paul says Jesus is the rock, right? right? It doesn't say God is the rock. And it's not just saying generically that God is the rock, like the yeah, Psalter says, right. right? It's it's Christ was the rock yeah. who's providing water yeah, in the wilderness. He's the bread from heaven. He's the the one who tabernacles among us. He's the, the final priesthood. He's the final sacrifice. He's the new Joshua who gives true rest. He's the final judge. He's the son of David. He's greater than Solomon. He's the final prophet. He's the final temple. He's the sage uh, who brings us wisdom. He's the bridegroom. He's the one who ushers in the new creation. Uh, as I said, he corresponds to Noah and the flood. He's the reversal of Babel. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's the the he's Jacob's ladder. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the goal of the law. He's the serpent in the wilderness. He's the cursed one hung on a tree. He's the one born of a virgin. He's the suffering servant. He's the great shepherd. He's the son of man. You know, do you know him? <laughs> do you know him? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that covers everything. What, what doesn't that cover? Every... Uh, institution, whether it's it's sacrifice or temple or the holy days or, or the festivals. Office. I mean, all of those. All, yeah. Office, prophet, priest, king, sage, um, all of these are finding their fulfillment in Jesus. And so every that covers every book in the Old Testament. Now would be a good time to hear from our sponsor, The Biblical Recorder. News moves faster than ever. Trying to keep up can be exhausting. Social media is great, but we all know how toxic it can be. Sometimes I wish news reporters could just text me the information I need and answer my question. Well, that's exactly why The Biblical Recorder created BR Connect, a text messaging service that keeps you up to speed with daily updates and live news alerts. No more trolls, no more bots, no more keyboard warriors to hijack your Southern Baptist news stories. For just $3 a month, you can have direct access to a team of award-winning journalists. They'll send you news before it breaks, and you can text them back with questions or comments anytime. You won't find a better way to stay in the loop. Go to brnow.org backslash connect to subscribe. It comes with a 14-day free trial, and you can cancel at any time. Again, sign up today at brnow.org backslash connect. The Biblical Recorder is here to help you find the information and inspiration you need. That's good. Um, in this vein, and we want to talk some about, uh, and this is another kind of uh, 
I guess, something that's thrown at people that try to do Christ-centered preaching, but that's, won't this just lead us into fanciful interpretation and, and really lead us into to allegory? What would you say to that objection? So, yeah, a couple things I'd say. One is, why is, alleg- again, let me ask a question, why is allegory the big bad boogeyman? Um, because that's often presented as a way just to shut down conversation. What I mean by allegory is like, the, yeah, fanciful, metaphorical interpretation where, where you're saying, okay, this detail in the text refers to this. So, so it's not referring to what it's literally talking about. So the five stones in the creek that David's getting up is, you know, is not just referring to five literal stones that historically David picked up, but it's corresponding to spiritual realities. He picked the, the five stones that you need to face your giants are prayer, scripture, church, godly friends, whatever, you know, whatever it is. And so this is taking a literal thing, d- d- description in the text and then trying to just kind of pull out some spiritual reality that it refers to. Uh, that's what I think people mean by allegory. And so, but again, the, the first question is, why is that the big bad boogeyman? That that's that's given as an objection to shut down conversation because right. it was like, oh no, I don't, I don't want to be right. guilty of allegory. I don't want to do allegory. And so, no, no, no. And so, my my question in response is, why is that the big bad boogeyman? Why is interpreting the text without seeing Jesus in there? Why would why is that not dangerous? Yeah. Why is that not something that's ridiculous? And you've used illustration, an illustration before I think is really helpful that you, you could share here on if you are kind of in that, maybe um, I don't want to mess up. Like, like you know, you, you've used ba- a baseball analogy to say, no, go ahead and go ahead and try. And yeah, so, yeah. I think so when it comes to preaching or even just reading the Bible as, as Christ followers, we want to see Jesus, right? Because it's beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that we're transformed. So we want to see Jesus. And so my what I tell preachers and, and tell people as they're reading their Bible is, don't be afraid. Don't be so afraid that you're you're scared to to see Jesus. Just as my dad, when I was younger and played baseball, dad would never get mad at us for striking out. But he would get mad at us if we struck out looking at a third strike. Right. And yeah. he'd say, take a swing, take a cut. Yeah. Okay, don't just stand there and look at it. And so my, my thing is when you're reading a text, when you're preaching a text, teaching a text, take a swing. Right. Try to show how it points to Jesus. Even if it if you mess up, I think the Lord's going to bless that, um, and so at least at least take a swing. But I don't think you should be afraid of it as the big bad boogeyman, right. because I think just reading it again, if you're just reading David and Goliath, and you're saying you need to face your giants, you need to be brave, okay, that's really dangerous too, because outside of the salvation that we have in Christ, you're not going to be able to face your giants. They're going to take you down, okay, and so that's as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than allegory. Uh, and so that's the first response would just be, why is allegory so bad? Uh, the second thing I would say is allegory, bad allegory, because there's there's places like Paul in Galatians 4 says, I'm going to do allegory here, and, and, and obviously it's right for him to do it because he's an, an apostle. But bad allegory, again, looks at every detail of the text and then assigns a spiritual value to it. Again, like the five stones, it then corresponds to these five realities that you need to use to face spiritual giants or whatever. The five stones in the David and Goliath story. Yeah, the five stones in the David and Goliath story. Or, you know, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the the donkey represents this, the man represents this, you know, and and trying to assign a a value to every detail in the text. And also the, the problem with allegory is it tries to go 
uh, one-to-one, straight from the reader, straight from the text to the audience, mm-hmm. to the congregation, to the person reading it. And it by, often the allegory bypasses Jesus. And so that's what I, I, I say is bad allegory because it's, it's, it's going straight from, well, David used these five stones, and so here's how you use five things in your life to fight, and there's, there's no Jesus there. Right. Yeah. And so what I want to argue for is, is a good allegory, which is what we call typology, or just these patterns that are fulfilled in Jesus— the way that you avoid getting into these fanciful interpretations, again, is letting the New Testament dictate how you um, how you read the Old Testament. And so, again, these controlling things, right, that we, we've talked about, new Adam, new Moses, Passover lamb, sacrifice, king, priest, etc. The New Testament's showing you how to interpret the Old Testament as you let that be the, the boundaries, let that be uh, the guide rails. Uh, Dennis Johnson wrote a book called Him We Proclaim, which is a, which is a really good book, where he he makes his argument and shows us how to do this, how, how we let the Bible itself be kind of the parameters, is he said, look, the Psalms, there's different types of Psalms, right? There's royal Psalms, there's Psalms about the delighting in the law, there's Psalms that are are lament Psalms, where the, where the, the psalmist is suffering in some way and he's crying out to God for help. And so Dennis Johnson in his in his book says, if the New Testament interprets one lament psalm as fulfilled in Jesus, so for example, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Clearly, clearly the New Testament and Jesus himself references that psalm as his experience and what he's experiencing at the cross. And so since the New Testament clearly indicates that that lament psalm is fulfilled in Jesus, Dennis Johnson says, well, then then you can approach all lament psalms as if in some way they're depicting the righteous sufferer, Jesus. And then in Christ, how we as believers should face suffering and should lean on the Lord for help. But again, you're not bypassing Jesus and going straight from the psalm, straight to to the reader, the power to actually being able to gain comfort in your suffering is to recognize that in Christ, God will ultimately vindicate um, mm. the righteous one, and that you're not righteous, but you're in Christ, and so you're counted as righteous, and so he's going to vindicate you in the same way that he vindicated Christ. So you're letting the Bible be the controlling factor. So let's maybe conclude the episode with giving some practical examples. Let's, let's think about two. We've talked about, um, we've hit on this briefly, but one of the ones that um, is kind of clearly, people say, is clearly in the New Testament, Joseph is not called a type. You would disagree with that, so let's address that. But then let's just pick another example of somebody, maybe a person or something else that is, is not talked about in the New Testament, and you'd say, no, I think we, can, we clearly can do what the apostles were doing with this person. Uh, and so we could, we could do Naboth, we could do Boaz, you know, I'll leave yeah. that up to you. But maybe do Joseph and then one of those. Yeah, so, so Joseph is referenced in Stephen's sermon, uh, before the council, and we may have talked about this before, but in in his in his defense before the council, he's walking through the history of Israel, and he's showing this fourfold pattern of the way that one God raises up a savior, two the Jews reject him, three the Gentiles accept him, and then four he saves Israel. And the first person he mentions in that pattern is Joseph, rejected by his brothers. But then ultimately, through suffering, he finds favor in Egypt, and then through that, uh, he saves the Jews. Second would be Moses. Stephen mentions Moses, who goes out, see his kinsmen being mistreated, strikes the the Egyptian down, thinks that—Stephen says he thinks that they recognize the Lord's giving them deliverance through his hand. They reject him, say, you know, who made you Lord over us? He flees, finds acceptance in Midian, and then he comes back in the Exodus and saves the Jews. And then, and then Stephen's again showing how that that climaxes in 
you know, you, you persecuted and killed all the prophets, and that culminated in Jesus, the Lord of glory that you crucified, uh, but God is raised from the dead. Uh, and then Romans 11, he's going to come back at some point in the future. The Jews are going to be saved. They're going to be grafted back in. Um, and so, so Stephen's showing you how to interpret the Joseph story. He's a, a little s savior right. that God has raised up that faces rejection ultimately and suffering, but then God vindicates him and God uses him to bring physical salvation to the world. And that culminates in Jesus, the salvation he brings to the world. Right. So that, that would be a type of, there, throughout there is a picture of the righteous sufferer right. who not just is righteous and suffers, but then through his suffering is able to actually save. Save and bring forgiveness. That's what you see in, in Joseph's life where he forgives his brothers. Right, they think when they come and they when right. he finally they recognize him and they think, well, when our dad dies, he's going to get us, and and he is like weeping and he's like, no, like I'm I'm not what you meant for evil, God meant for good, and 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 to carry out His plan, and so uh, yeah, and so that's how you'd see with Joseph. Another example again where we talk about potentially allegory is some people we talk we've referenced before Chris Will's Scarlet Thread of um, Salvation, which is a reference to. Rahab right. and the scarlet thread that she's asked to tie in her window. And people look at that and say, that's allegory. Okay, right. So what you're saying is every reference to scarlet, every reference to red right. in the Bible, you're saying is a reference to blood and, and to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's allegory. And it's just, it's an incidental detail in some places where, the, where you see red. And so, and so I would say, one, yes, not every mention of red in the Old Testament is a reference to blood right. and is a reference to the blood of Christ. But but no, Rahab, interpreting Rahab's story in that way is not allegory, because in the flow of Joshua, in, in the flow of what's going on, the, the, first thing that the, the first thing that happens before the people go into Jericho, before the army takes uh, Jericho, when the, when the spies have told her, tie this red cord in the window of your house, the very first thing that happens before they go into Jericho is they celebrate the Passover. Right. They circumcise the people who had not been circumcised so that they can celebrate the Passover for the first time in the promised land. And what is the Passover? The Passover is is celebrating the event well, where they, they were asked yeah. to display red on the doorpost right. of their house. So they would be passed over by the death blood angel. Blood of a, of a lamb, spotless lamb, so the death angel would pass over. That's exactly what happens in the Rahab story. She's asked to display red in the window of her house. The death that comes to the people of Jericho passes over her. Her family is rescued because she's sided with the God of Israel. And that ultimately points us to Christ and to his blood and how it brings us forgiveness. And so the death angel can ultimately pass us over. And Jesus is saying, right, in, his, in the Last Supper, I'm instituting the Passover in the shedding of my blood. Um, and so, so, yeah, I don't think that's fanciful. I, don't, I think it's in the flow of what Joshua was doing and in the flow from Passover to Jesus as our final Passover lamb what the, the, the biblical author is, is trying to show us about our salvation. Mm. And so, yeah, the New Testament does. So the New Testament points back clearly to Rahab as being in the line of Jesus, right? She's one of the, the four, three or four women right. mentioned in the genealogy of Matthew. But even even more so than that, in this, this theme of uh, appeasing the death angels so that he will pass over, she's in that, in that theme. Right. So. Yeah. Give us an example of something that is clearly not addressed, so not Joseph, because we, we're saying he is addressed, but clearly not addressed in the New Testament, but you would say, no, it's clear, this is a type of Christ. Yeah, I'd say, so one, again, one example, this would be, um, and this may be an obscure ab- uh, example, but you can look at this story, I think in Second Chronicles 22 through 24 would be Joash, King Joash. So this wicked queen, Athaliah, 
who kills, tries to kill all of the offspring of David, which is a, which is a massive issue. You kill, if, if all the, the sons of David die, guess what? The promise of the Messiah dies, which means that, that, you're, that there's going to be no Jesus, right. which is going to be massively problematic. And so what happens is, though, one baby who's the son of David, Joash, is hidden away mm. so that he's not, he's not killed. And then the seventh year he comes out and Athaliah is killed and he, he takes, takes the throne. Well, again, that's not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament, but clearly in the line of Moses being rescued during the slaughter of the babies and him being the one that God uses to save Israel and then Joash being saved in the slaughter of the babies, and him being his his coming out party being what overthrows Athaliah and this wicked um, intermarriage between the house of Ahab and the house of David being thrown over and there being rest in the land of Israel, and then Jesus being hidden away when Herod's slaughtering the babies, um, and then ultimately being the savior of the world. Even though it's not mentioned in the New Testament, it's clearly in that line right. of what the New Testament um, has, has revealed to us. Oh, that's good. Thank you for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com. And please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.